Welcome to this episode of the Australian Naval History podcast series, where we examine important events and themes in the Royal Australian Navy's history. Hello, I'm Professor Peter Stanley from UNSW Canberra, the University of New South Wales, Canberra. In previous seasons of the Australian Naval History podcast series, we've discussed the service and loss of the RAN's first submarines, AE-1 and AE-2, during the Great War. In the 21 years between the two world wars, the Royal Australian Navy twice re-established its submarine arm, equipped with modern diesel submarines, only to have to disband each iteration of the submarine arm after only a few years. The story is one of ambition, technical and fiscal challenges, as well as notable achievements. It's a story that still resonates today as the RAN embarks on the ambitious attack class submarine program. To tell this fascinating story, I'm joined by, firstly, Rear Admiral Peter Briggs, a retired submariner who commanded two Oberon-class submarines, Otway and Oxley, in the 1970s. He went on to command the submarine squadron. Most notably, in 2017, Admiral Briggs led the successful search for the Great War submarine AE-1. This was the subject of a previous podcast, which I commend to listeners. Also, Rear Admiral James Goldrick, who was a member of the Naval Studies Group at UNSW Canberra. During his naval career, he served as an anti-submarine warfare specialist and went on to command the frigate HMAS Sydney, the Maritime Interception Force in the Arabian Gulf, and Australian Maritime Border Command. As a naval historian, Admiral Goldrick has written the critically acclaimed books Before Jutland and After Jutland, as well as, in this context, a study of the British plans for the submarine defence of the Far East between 1919 and 1940. And finally, Dr Michael White, who is a former submariner and since 1988 a Queen's Counsel, specialising in maritime law. He's also a law lecturer at the University of Queensland. Michael is the author of the definitive history of RAN submarines titled Australian Submarines, History. Well, welcome to all three uh, experts. Now, can I firstly ask Michael White, in 1918, the Australian government was given by the British government six J-class submarines. Can you explain that, please? Yes, at the end of World War I, Australia had lost its two submarines, AE-1 AE-2. The government was, had resolved that we wanted to stay in the submarine program as part of our Australian fleet. This suited the British system, which was an imperial system which benefited all of the dominions, including Australia. And it had a uh, earlier pre-war report from Admiral Henderson saying that we should have six submarines. Now, we could only afford a couple, but the uh, six J-class boats from the RN were surplus to home defence. So instead of our paying for construction of new ones, then they offered us six, six submarines, which we gladly accepted. And so that's why, along with the ageing platypus, the submarine uh, depot ship, uh, the government agreed to the offer and very gratefully because it cost us nothing. Mm. Thanks, Michael. James Goldrick, can you tell us something of these large and, and modern submarines? They were the largest diesel boats the British had and had originally been designed as a, a fast flank for the main British battle fleet, the Grand Fleet. 
but the diesel technology wasn't up to that job. They really weren't fast enough. And indeed, the famous steam-propelled K-class submarines took up that role. So the J-class had proved very effective in the North Sea uh, with long endurance and powerful radios and had become the front line. And indeed, one of them, J-1, had the distinction of having damaged in one salvo two German Koenig-class battleships. Uh, they were about the best sort of submarines for the Australian situation because they were big and had considerable endurance, but as it turned out, there would be a great number of problems with them. Thanks. Peter Briggs, the long passage from the United Kingdom was to be an eventful one. Can you explain what occurred? Well, the J-Class arrived in July 1919. Uh, as, as James has said, they were used extensively in the latter phases of World War I. And in fact, they were, they were rather well worn out. Um, on arrival, they, their batteries were in need of replacement and their torpedo tubes require modification. So the uh, main delay on the, on the uh, delivery trip was, was mechanical. They didn't dive en route. Um, and when they got here, their serviceability was not good because of their... their well-worn state and the lack of preparation in terms of spares or basing for them. Uh, and I believe it was an eventful voyage. Michael White, can you discuss the collision uh, that the submarines had with the, uh, the sailing ship uh, Terra Nuvia and Yolanda? Uh, well, the boats had sailed from Gosport uh, on the start to Australia. Now so going down off uh, southern France and uh, northern Spain, Portugal, I had this big swell and bad storm coming in from starboard, typical Atlantic storm, and uh, in the course of which an unlit sailing boat was coming from the opposite direction. The opposite officer watch saw it, but judged they'd passed clear. But in the course of events, they had a slight collision with the boat coming down, banging into its tanks. They watched the sailing boat, and thought it was okay and kept going. However, it sank, as they later found out, and the CEO and the officer watch were reprimanded for it. No lives were lost. Hmm. Thank you. Uh, Michael White, turning now to the reconstitution of the submarine arm, the Royal Australian Navy had to find about 300 submariners. Can you explain how the Navy approached this challenge and, and perhaps some of the personalities in the squadron? Well, the naval representative in London um, was charged with finding all of these submariners for the six boats, the platypus, and for the spare crew. Um, it, he had the greatest cooperation from the RN submariners, especially Commodore submarines, and uh, it was their close liaison that made it so successful. So between RN uh, submariners who were happy to go with the squadron. Some stayed on loan, some transferred to the RAN, and the Australian submariners, including some from AE1 and AE2, uh, they managed to get the numbers pretty well. The six gift destroyers were also meant to be manned, but they were mothballed in the end. Now, of the personalities, I'll mention a few. Commander um, Boyle VC was the squadron commander of them. He was the captain of E-14. The vessel at A 2 was meant to meet in the Sea of Marmara when it was sunk. 
Boyle was very good. Then of our own people, there were nine RAN officers who'd done submarine training, called the Pioneer class. Uh, Frank Getting was probably the most senior and leader of them. He later went on to command an H-boat, was well qualified, and he went to general service. He was the captain of HMAS of Canberra when it was sunk in the Battle of the Japanese in the Solomon Islands. He was killed. Uh, Sub-Lieutenant Larkin was a very promising young man. He was in J2, and when they were um, in passage off Borneo, they all used to take their gear up and the casing was so hot down below, and he disappeared in the night. They think he probably rolled off, struck his head on the tank and drowned. Lieutenant Wilkins was lost later uh, in, in a submarine accident. Uh, Harry Shaw survived it all, and uh, he went on to become a Commodore and quite famous. I mentioned two others. There was uh, Midshipman Cunningham, went into the K-boats, as so many of them did, and was lost in K-17 in 1918, what they call the Battle of May Island, where the cruisers and battleships in a fog near Glasgow ran into the submarines. And uh, Cunningham's sister actually married in the end Harry Showers. And then the last one I mentioned is Holbrook, VC, the captain of the B-11. Uh, that's the name of the Australian Submarine Museum at Holbrook. Uh, he was in command of J-2 for a while, but wasn't in the fleet when it sailed. And... When the submarines arrived in Australia, they were sent to Geelong, which became their operating base. Um, Peter Briggs, can you explain their training program? Yes, when they arrived, the base hadn't been uh, selected, uh, nor had the refitting site. Which later in the year, Garden Island and Cockatoo Island in Sydney were chosen as refitting sites. Uh, and the search for the base obviously became more urgent. Osborne House on the shores of Corio Bay at Geelong had been placed at the disposal of the Navy from 1912. It was the site of the first Naval College, 1913 to 1914, where after that the college moved to Jarvis Bay. And it was used as a military hospital during the war and then as a convalescent home for nurses by the Red Cross post-war. Uh, the Navy forced the resumption of Osborne House um, I would say without seriously considering its suitability. The site required significant modifications, and even with these completed, it was a marginal base. There was insufficient depth of water to berth the depot ship, but it was alongside all the J-class, so they all had to lay it boys offshore and uh, transfer by boat to and from Osborne House. But there were no workshops and there was no battery shop. The distance to diveable water was about 18 miles. So it, was, uh, it took a while to get out into the bay where they could dive. And nonetheless, the boats began a training program and four out of the six uh, operating uh, conducted uh, frequent torpedo firing exercises in the bay. Thanks. Um, Michael White, these J-boats sound like they were quite an advanced submarine for their time. So what were the challenges that the Navy faced in maintaining them in service? Well... Unfortunately, the J-boats, at least all of them except J-7, had had a long, hard war 
and they were mechanically worn out. They'd had a brief refit before they sailed, but they kept breaking down on the way out from Britain to Australia. When they got to Australia, the dockyard was cockatoo in Sydney. The base, as Peter's explained, was in Geelong in Victoria, and there was nothing much in Victoria except platypus, which was old, built for two boats, a one a 2 and its machinery wasn't well equipped. Captain Boyle, as Commander Boyle was promoted, was asked by the Naval Board to hold an inquiry into it all, and his report is absolutely damning. He said that, uh, that there was no special arrangements made in Australia for submarines, that uh, the dockyard didn't have the expertise at Cockatoo, and in order to have the right equipment, that there was nothing much down in Victoria for them to repair all this stuff, the result of which uh, most of them were unfit. The batteries for two of them hadn't arrived to be replaced and their batteries becoming dangerous. So it was all a sad story of inadequate shore-based preparation for this submarine fleet. Mm, thank you. Um but the boats were kept in service for about five years. James Goldrick, uh, could you conclude the story of the J-class submarines? A key point to note, in addition to the totally inadequate preparations, was that the Royal Australian Navy was under increasing pressure financially um, and indeed went... It's very interesting looking at the way Treasury keeps imposing, sometimes at no notice, a succession of cuts time after time on the Navy... Uh, as the submarines are proving much more expensive than was planned, um, as they're trying to get them back up to uh, a reasonable condition and expending a lot of money doing so, uh, these cuts are restricting the Navy's uh, room for manoeuvre further and further uh, to the point where uh, its very survival is starting to be challenged. And in those circumstances, uh, the, the priority had to be keeping the cruisers, which were viewed as the training platforms to allow a Navy to, re to retain a nucleus of sufficient numbers of trained personnel. And effectively, with all the other problems they were having, eventually the J-boats had to go. Had the financial situation not been so dire, despite the problems with them, because there was a desire, um, particularly from an, an Empire defence point of view, to maintain a submarine capability, I think it's likely at least two boats would have been kept to be the transition um, to the new classes that you know would follow in due course. But financially, it really was a situation that has no parallel, I think, in the last 50 or 60 years um, for the pressure that was on the Naval Board, uh, which, of course, as Michael said, had not handled this well to start with, uh, but they were really left with very little room for manoeuvre. So the J-class submarines go out of service, but as I understand it, there's still a role for submarines in Imperial and Australian defence at the time. Can you talk about the context of the use of submarines at this time? Yes, the, the concept of the uh, submarine defence of the Far East was central to the way the British wanted to buy time uh, for their plan, if necessary, to send a main fleet uh, from the Mediterranean and home waters uh, which would eventually be based on the to-be-built base at Singapore. Um, but there was a realisation that this would take time, two months, maybe even three months, and a credible defence was needed. And the British from the start are thinking about having a substantial submarine force, and indeed 
By the end of 1919, there are 12 L-class submarines in the Far East. And from that point, basically the majority of British front-line submarines, not training boats or reserve boats, but front-line submarines are in the Far East. The British plan to have at least 21. Uh, they only eventually get to 15. But Australia, and this was confirmed at the 1923 conference, is meant to contribute a flotilla of six boats, and that's the plan, with the idea that these boats, while the British boats are in the South China Sea, the East China Sea, and in Japanese waters, will close the deep water passages uh, of the archipelago to ensure Japanese raiders can't get into the Indian Ocean. And that was a policy confirmed in 1923 at the Imperial Conference. The other part of that was cruisers for trade protection um, and eventually uh, anti-surface work against the Japanese when the main fleet arrived. So submarine defence the Far East is a thing the British go to very early and they keep at, and they have 15 submarines in the Far East in 1939. And that, James, thank you, that, that explains why Australia in the mid-20s uh, again introduces a submarine. So in 1924, as I understand it, Peter Briggs, the Australian government ordered two of the modern O-class submarines from Britain, and they were to be named Otway and Oxley. And coincidentally, you commanded the second Otway and Oxley in the 1970s. But can you give us a thumbnail sketch of the first Otway and Oxley boats? Yes, these were uh, ocean-going or cruiser-type, as they were described, submarines. Um, they were similar size to the J-boats, 1,800 tonnes dived, uh, and they commissioned in 1927, so a pleasantly short uh, build and delivery timescale, one we could do with today, I think. Um, they had a much greater endurance than the J-class, 11,500 nautical miles at eight knots, a diving depth of up to 200 feet. They were slower on the surface with a speed of 15 knots uh, and could do nine knots dive for about an hour. Their armament was quite uh, significant, six bow torpedo tubes, two stern tubes and a four-inch gun. They had modified diesel engines, which no doubt we'll hear a bit more about shortly, uh, to accommodate the increase in size and three 112-cell batteries. They carried additional fresh water for tropical service, and overall, for the day, they were quite a suitable submarine to suit Australia's long-range and tropical conditions and a significant advance on the J-Class. Indeed. Uh, thank you, Peter. Now, Michael White, with the revival of the submarine force, once again, the Royal Australian Navy has to find over 100 submariners. How did it fair in that, and can you discuss some of the key personalities? Yes, the uh, the RN and the RAN cooperated very closely, and one difference from the J-Class was by the time the first Oxley and Otway were coming up for commissioning, was that the RAN now had a, a lot of sailors and some petty officers and a few officers who were submarine trained or wished to be submarine trained. So in the end, um, the two O-boats needed to have a, a submarine captain from the RN. Oxley in the beginning was Commander Marrick, who was a hero from the First War, DSC. Otway was Lieutenant Commander Tweedy, also a hero from the First War, DSC. The first lieutenants were Australians, Getting and Shaw, 
and the rest of the officers were all Australians. Hoxley had the famous uh, Australian Chief Petty Officer, Cecil Bray, and Chief ERA was from the RN, who changed the RAN, and ditto with uh, Otway. Uh, the RN, the coxswain and the Chief ERA were both RN, but changed to the Australian and were happy to serve. It was yet another successful story. Now, some of the people I mentioned just earlier about uh, getting and Shaw went on to have a submarine, but the other people really were very good, very keen. Uh, lots of people weren't allowed to volunteer for these boats. Submarine pay was strong and good, plenty of adventure, so we had no real trouble manning First Oxley, Oxley and Otway. Uh, Peter Briggs, you talked about the rapid building of Otway and Oxley, but I understand that they have the distinction of taking the longest time to complete their delivery voyage from Britain of any Royal Australian Navy warship. Can you tell us what happened? Well, the pair sailed from Dolphin in Gosport on February uh, 1928. Uh, en route at Gibraltar, uh, That they noticed that they were cracking in the... Uh, engine columns, that's the, the basic structure of the engine in both Oxley and Otway. Um, subsequently, similar cracks were found in the first of class submarines serving in the Royal Navy. And this was a, a, a problem with the casting uh, of the engine columns and it was present throughout both the engines and the spare parts that they were carrying. They made some temporary repairs at sea to stop the engines failing. Uh, but once they got to Malta, they had to stop and dismantle the engines and the builder, Vickers, uh, came in to complete repairs. Uh, it was an extremely expensive and long undertaking. It took six months to do it. Uh, probably for the first and last time, the defect was covered by a warranty and the shipbuilder covered the $12 million, uh, covered, sorry, the, the cost uh, of repairing the, uh, the defects. Oxley recommissioned in August 28 and Otway on the 1st of September 1928 and after storing and sea trials both sailed for Australia on the 15th of November, arriving at Thursday Island uh, to alongside Platypus on the 23rd of June 1929 uh, to find yet again there was no accommodation in the depot ship, the mess deck were full of sick personnel from other ships so some things didn't change. Uh, they arrived in Sydney on the 14th of February 1929, so it's probably a record length. The defects were followed by the Australian newspapers of the day and subject to much public debate, along with one of the utility of submarines by senior RAN officers. And once they had arrived, Michael White, how did the O-boats fare in service? Well, it's a familiar story, uh, compounded by the year it took to get to Australia. Uh, the dockyard wasn't prepared for submarines. The shore planning had completely failed once again. There was no equipment. Some of the torpedoes for practising hadn't arrived. So they went into refit as best they can, uh, could on arrival. After they came out and went into operations, they had to work up again. The COs of the two boats hadn't done an attack for two and a half years. 30% of the sailors had changed on the boats 
over the year from those who did the workup. So they worked up in Jarvis Bay in the calm waters there. Then later they did some fleet exercises. And um, when they went back to uh, Sydney, Platypus was even more ancient and unsuitable for the two early O-boats than it was for the J-boats. Had no room, as Peter said, for accommodation and uh, its equipment was out of date. I might mention when they did the fleet exercises at the wash-up, reports show something that's pretty familiar to submariners. The COs, the two boats, said they, they carried out successful attacks on the major fleet units. The major fleet units navigators said that wasn't so. They would have avoided the torpedo attacks by turning in time, and the Air Force component of it said they would have sunk the submarines. So it's a sort of wash-up scenario that's pretty familiar with every submarine. The COs had one final word to say, though. They had recovered a couple of crushed collision heads of the torpedoes they'd fired, which seemed to tip the debate their way a bit. Thank you. James Goldrick, the O-boats seem to have had an even shorter period of Royal Australian Navy service than the J-boats. Can you tell us what happened? Again, it's fundamentally about money. Australia's economic position deteriorates rapidly, in fact, well before the Great Depression, and the Australian Navy finds itself overcommitted. Um, there was, particularly on the part of Admiral uh, Hyde, who's the squadron commander uh, from 26 to 29, and then the chief, he would later be first naval member, uh, something of a dislike of submarines, um, which was wrong in principle but right in practice because the money was simply not there to run the boats. And it was quite clear that the flotilla of six submarines would never be completed, certainly not in the foreseeable future. So the Australian Navy is left with two expensive submarines. In 1930, the London Naval Treaty imposes a tonnage limitation on the British Empire's submarines, which is another constraint. And it's, it's clear that the best thing to do uh, in order to keep the Navy surviving, and again, this, this idea you had the big ships, which are the nucleus for training people and maintaining enough numbers, to hand, back, to hand the submarines over to the British. Um, one of the things that that's Michael's uh, picked this up is about the only person I know who has, is that in handing over to the British, although the British didn't pay them, uh, pay us for them, there was a tacit agreement that when we were to buy a cruiser later on, there would be favourable financial arrangements, which in fact it took place. Um, so HMAS Sydney was bought on uh, some to some extent on the Never Never. But it really was fundamentally about money. I think had it been a different financial situation, many of the problems would have been overcome and an effective submarine force could have been brought into being. Mm. Peter Briggs, can you close the story on Oxley and Otway? What happened to them in their Royal, Royal Navy service? Well, they were transferred back to the Royal Navy and that went smoothly uh, on, on 10th of April 1931 and both saw active service during World War II in the Royal Navy. On the 14th September 1939, Oxley was torpedoed and sunk by a sister submarine, HMS Triton. Pair were patrolling off Norway, and the Board of Inquiry into the incident found that Oxley was out of position. Triton had recently obtained a, a visual navigation fix, and secondly, that Oxley failed to give the correct recognition 
signal in response to Triton's challenge. Uh, so uh, Triton was exonerated. Uh, Oxley did correct her recognition error, but it was too late. Triton had already fired the torpedoes. Uh, three survivors were found swimming on the surface, the commanding officer, Lieutenant Commander Bowman, a lookout, Abel Seaman Glucks, and both were recovered. A third survivor, probably the officer of the watch in Oxley, Lieutenant Manley, disappeared before he could be rescued. Uh, interestingly, uh, on the 10th of April 1940, Triton fired 10 torpedoes at three German cruisers involved in the invasion of Norway off Skagen without success. The Triton story closed in 18 December 1940 when she was lost to all hands on a patrol in the Adriatic, probably due to a sea mine. The loss of Oxley during the war was explained as, uh, as an accidental explosion rather than um, loss to torpedoing. And then after the war, it was explained as a collision with Triton. The truth was not made public until the 1950s. Otway saw out the war largely as a training submarine in the Mediterranean, the home waters. She did complete four war patrols in the Bay of Biscay in 1941 guarding against a sortie by Jap German heavy ships, and she was sold for scrap on the 24th of August, 1945. Thank you, Peter. Now, uh, to conclude, I, I'd like to ask our panel members for their thoughts on the legacy of the Royal Australian Navy's experience of operating submarines in the interwar period. Uh, Peter Briggs, can I ask you to go first? Yes, so three points I'd make, uh, and it's, it has been commented on. Between the wars, the RAN operated as an extension of the Royal Navy. Uh, submarines were in their infancy and the full potential of their offensive capability in defence of Australia was not realised. Uh, perhaps until the US Navy introduced its larger fleet submarines during World War II. The, happily, the fourth attempt to operate submarines, the Oberon class in the 1960s, was a much better prepared effort with a base of platypus in North Sydney. Although the accommodation problem remained, with submarine sailors spread between the shore establishment HMAS Penguin at Middlehead and HMAS Cuttable on the edge of the CBD. This was a very unhappy arrangement for all concerned. It took the establishment of a new submarine base at Stirling in the 1990s in Western Australia before this was corrected and the introduction of the Collins class to shift thinking the offensive use of submarines for Australia's defence. Thanks, Peter. Michael White. Um, my conclusions from this is that uh, in the interwar period, uh, every Navy loses its expertise, which is then got to recapture as soon as the war breaks out, despite all the training one does. Uh, it's lost at sea and ashore. At sea, the uh, seagoers can pretty quickly, within a year or so, pick up that expertise they lost. But ashore, the timelines are so long that uh, mistakes made ashore uh, carry on for years and years. Extrapolating that to the current situation in Australia, I regard the fact that we're planning in 10 years' time to get submarines at rare dependent is nothing short of a national disaster. 
air-dependent submarines must show masts. They release heat near the surface. They'll be detected quickly and a hail of missiles come in. And, of course, submarines have no air defence system. Those are my conclusions over these years of trying to get a submarine force going. Mm, thank you, Michael. And finally, uh, James Goldrick, your thoughts on the legacy of uh, this period? The first is that the extent to which there was an imaginative effort to really buy time for what has been called since the Singapore strategy is something that is, I think, not properly understood. And if, of course, the British uh, had had to deal with the Japanese before the Germans, I think it would have been a very different story uh, from the legend of complete neglect. Uh, those 15 boats uh, in 1939 were the frontline boats of the Royal Navy with some of the best submariners, and they were definitely combat-oriented and indeed had worked out some interesting techniques for wolf pack uh, attacks on the Japanese using the Royal Air Force for their reconnaissance. Um, but Australia didn't really understand the importance of this defensive uh, mode is really quite apparent in a lot of the Australian archives, and I think it touches on Michael's point um, as well as Peter's. My other comment is the extent to which the revival of the submarine force with the Oberon class, although it had uh, its problems and its deficiencies, as Peter said, was very much better organised, better resourced, and viewed by the Navy, I think, as a much better, uh, in a much more coherent way, as not only a long-term project, but indeed a key element of our future a strategic uh, and offensive capabilities, not only for the Navy, but for Australia as a whole. Mm. Well, thank you all three gentlemen for those, those thoughts. Uh, unfortunately, that's all we have time for in this often sad and salutary story. Our thanks go to Admiral Peter Briggs, Dr Michael White and Admiral James Goldrick. This podcast has been produced by the Naval Studies Group at UNSW Canberra. Its production is supported by the Royal Australian Navy's Sea Power Centre, the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society of Australia and the Submarine Institute of Australia. Thank you for joining us. And if you like this episode, please rate it on your podcast app so other people can learn of the Australian Naval History podcast series. Goodbye for now.